2: Is. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to talk about my favorite
0: scene in the movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola.
1: Okay, well, there's never a bad time to discuss uh, that that particular uh, interpretation of Dracula.
0: It is a great one, isn't it? Yeah. It's like horrible, but it's also great.
1: <laughs> it has some wonderful uh, design in it. I love the the suit of armor. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I
0: love some of the the painted backdrops and Mm -hmm. stuff. But there's a great scene where so, you know, the basic story of Dracula, these characters are in, I think, late Victorian England and Dracula, Count Dracula comes to England from Transylvania and begins feeding on the locals in England. And uh, there is the the character Van Helsing, the Van. Vampire Slayer, Man of Great Wisdom. And in the Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola version, he is played by Anthony Hopkins in oh, yes. a wonderfully weird, hyperactive performance. <laughs> uh, and there's a scene where the main character's friend, Lucy has been turned into a vampire by Count Dracula. And Van Helsing and his associates have just come back from slaying the vampire version of their friend Lucy. And the character Mina Harker, played in the movie by Winona Ryder, she asks, How did Lucy die? Was she in great pain? And Anthony Hopkins, as Van Helsing says... Yes, yeah, she was in great pain. Then we cut off her head, drove a stake through her heart, and then burned it, and then she
1: found peace. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I always love that because of the last line at the end there, and then she found peace.
1: Yeah, everything else is thoroughly non-euphemistic. It's pr- pretty straightforward. These are the, the steps we took to, <laughs> to tear her corpse apart to, to kill her, her undead, um, uh, um, unnatural life. Right. But then you have to end it with a euphemism. Yeah. So
0: they, they have these terms ready at hand she found peace, she passed on, she went to a better place. These are the the friendly terms for death. He could have just finished as he began by saying, and then she died screaming. (laughs) But instead, he uses the euphemism, and then she found peace, and it's a great contrast. It's it's why it's such a wonderful comic moment. But it, it makes you aware of the absurdity of the euphemisms that we use in everyday language.
1: Yeah, I feel like in researching this episode, we both uh, had to do a lot of self-examination regarding our own use of uh, euphemisms, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, just how ubiquitous uh, euphemistic language is. It's everywhere. Yeah,
0: it's I I bet it's half of all the talk you do. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the concept of a euphemism is, uh, if you're not familiar with the word, it just means using a friendlier or more acceptable term to express an idea that for some reason is taboo or uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I, it, it's interesting thinking about it in terms of, of of having a four and a half year old in the house. Yes, because he he does not have a really, a great use of euphemisms. Yet. Um, when, when He's he, very blunt, right? When he he'll be eating dinner and he'll say, "I need to go poop. I'll be right <laughs> back." I'm, he'll he'll even lay out a, a detailed plan. I'm going to go poop and wash my hands, and I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to finish eating. And wouldn't it be great if we uh, could do
0: that during dinner parties?
1: Yeah, no, no. Like if an adult did that, you would just think they'd lost their mind, or just <laughs> were the most uncouth person imaginable, right? Uh, but but a child is is completely free uh, of this but yeah we would use a euphemism we would say uh, i need to go use the restroom i'm going to go uh make use of the lavatory uh Uh, or maybe Maybe you
0: visit the water closet yeah like or even
1: i'm gonna step out yeah i'm I'm gonna well that that's a weird one i've never heard anyone use that i'm gonna step out like what, what are you going to do if you're gonna step out I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's something you don't want to talk about. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I tend to fall back on, I'm going to go visit the restroom, or I'm going to go use the restroom, and I'll be right back. Visit, like you're going to have some quality time with Well, I'm keeping it vague as to what, I'm not going to give you the particulars of what's going to happen. Maybe I'm just washing my hands. Maybe I need to blow my nose. I might just stare in the mirror without blinking. Yeah, but I'm not going to say, I'm going to go poop, and then I will return. (laughs)
0: I bet there's a lot of stuff when you have a kid in the house that you have to do euphemistically that you you're used to talking more bluntly maybe with mm-hmm. your spouse or partner. Uh, but but once a kid comes along, you can't say everything the way you used to. Well,
1: it, it's interesting. There's a lot of there's a lot of back and forth, too, with kids regarding uh, especially uh, euphemisms regarding the human body. Right. Because uh, some parents uh, will will fall into this uh, habit of using like Cutesier, less uh Less accurate terminology for parts of the body, particularly uh, genitalia, which I
0: always find creepy when I hear. No offense to parents who do that. I'm mm-hmm. I'm not actually judging you. I'm just, that's just my instinctual reaction. Hearing like "pp" and stuff, it, it always sounds like "ick."
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, we try not to do that in our household. I mean, everyone everyone can you know do their own thing by mm-hmm. all means. But yeah, we try and say, "All right, penis, testicles, um, <laughs> etc." Right. Uh, be, because you know, You know, I I feel it's important for them to have an an accurate understanding of their body and then to be able to describe their body uh, seriously to say, you know, a physician. Yeah, if
0: they needed to talk to a doctor, they would need the correct terms. Yeah. Uh
1: but but the, that's an area where in in parenting circles people kind of go on. You, you hear arguments on both sides. Do do you ever
0: find yourself like wanting to curse in front of the child but you you have to find another
1: word? Oh yeah, all the time. Sometimes I don't find that other word. Um <laughs> Uh, th- this morning even driving through traffic uh, and my son reminded me he said they can't hear you and i guess that's true other drivers cannot hear me uh, that I is first. a perceptive kid yeah but but i try i do try and use certain euphemisms or just It's almost easier for me to just come up with a nonsense word. So referring to other drivers as Dumbledores or calling them crab drivers or something like that. Crab drivers. That's good. Because they're kind of, you know, they're scuttling around back and forth side (laughs) to side instead of going in straight lines. Uh, Like I find that easier to do because sometimes it's difficult to make a euphemism stick because – if I'm if I'm really irritated with another driver, my brain really wants to use uh, uh, the the F word or or the or the S word or, or one of these more actually profane uh, uh, words from our vocabulary. And there's something about a, a watered down version of it just will not suit.
0: Yeah, it seems to to have a power, almost a magical power. And yeah. I, I
1: think maybe that goes back to
0: uh, some deeply rooted part of the curse tradition in our brains, where you know thousands of years ago somebody issues a curse they think that that has power they yeah. think it's actually
1: doing something yeah it's ding not, dang is not going to yeah. not going to not going to do it's not going to suit right uh, fudge is not going to work so euphemisms in our house
0: uh my wife Rachel and I get a lot of enjoyment out of talking about our dog in un-euphemistic terms <laughs> when people normally would so one example when our dog's legs and jaws are jerking in his sleep you know he's having little doggy dreams i think many dog owners would be inclined to say oh he's dreaming about chasing something but we would say oh he's dreaming about killing yeah. <laughs> which he is he's definitely dreaming about killing little animals
1: huh yeah that's that, that, that's true. Yeah, I, I guess I do a certain amount of that with our, our, our pet as well. I'll, I'll give one more example, though, about uh, about raising a child and euphemisms is that sometimes you, you still uh, do not succeed in really driving home the names for things. Yeah. And. Without the the proper term, sometimes the, the like the children's uh, name for it is going to be totally e- even more unsuitable. So <laughs> I, I don't think I drove home properly, uh, you know, what the anus is uh, to my son. <laughs> okay. And so one day we had some people guests at the house, and uh, this is someone he hadn't even met before. But he he walks outside, just got up from the nap, and he he proudly announces, "Quote, uh, it itches where poop comes out on my bum." <laughs> <laughs> and, you uh, know, I think arguably like this, this is a more uncouth statement. Granted, he's four and a half, so nobody cares. But still, it would be more accurate to say my anus itches, right? But in a way, what he said was a, a, a euphemism. Really, it's an anti-euphemism, and we'll get into that in a, in, in a bit.
0: The the euphemism is actually cuter there in the situation where a kid says it. If, yeah, it's true. If the kid had said anus, that might have been weirder.
1: <laughs> yeah, but if an adult had said it, it itches on my bum where poop comes out, then the, you know, <laughs> right. he would call the authorities. Exactly.
0: Okay, so uh, let's uh, zoom in on the concept of the euphemism and try to figure out what it does what is its role in language apart from the obvious now we, we did say that it's essentially a nice word, right? It's a word that takes the place of a word that for some reason is inappropriate, offensive, uh, something people don't want to say or think about. Maybe that
1: conjures up too concrete of an image. Yeah, I mean, on the surface of things, it's don't say that, say this. But, of course, it's, it's more than that. A euphemism has the power to alter the meaning of the word or at least the spirit and tone of the word. Yeah. Right. It's like a, a black and white image versus a colorized image. euphemisms allow us to to colorize our, our linguistic choices to a certain extent. And I think we can all think of various examples where a euphemism simultaneously makes a word less offensive and, and yet creepier at the same time, such as uh, many of these uh, genitalia euphemisms that we've been discussing. Exactly, yeah.
0: PP. Hearing an adult say it, it's creepy. <laughs> it even rhymes.
1: Yeah, I would say most genitalia euphemisms Uh, Kind of sound like this. They have this this uh, this vibe of being at one point. They're they're deflecting us from the thing we're talking about Mm -hmm. and yet colorize it in a way that is distasteful.
0: Okay, so there are a bunch of different ways that you can come up with a euphemism, right? Like you you can put it together in several ways. There's a word that people have instinctually felt somehow they want to start avoiding saying, mm-hmm. but they still need the concept in everyday language. You still have to be able to refer to the thing the word refers to somehow. So you've got to come up with a different word. So where do these different words come from?
1: Well, you can, of course, really go down the rabbit hole figuring out what sort of euphemisms are doing what, uh, but here are some of the basic classifications to consider. Uh, there's uh, a term of foreign origin, okay, like a derriere or copulation, uh, urination. You're using a more, uh, you know, elegant and, uh, and and foreign term mm-hmm. for what you're talking about
0: in English. A lot of times, the the euphemisms kind of come from Latin constructions yeah. more so than from the Anglo-Saxon constructions, where the the short, straightforward word sounds kind of rude and concrete, mm-hmm. and that the Latin origin word sounds more abstract and less like it.
1: Uh, it less It's less likely to conjure an image. Right. Uh, another example is abbreviations. Uh, for instance, S O B, right, or fubar. These are both examples where we, we simply abbreviate uh, a, a, a a phrase mm-hmm. that would otherwise be offensive to some.
0: Right. And I guess in most cases you would still consider the abbreviation somewhat offensive, but maybe less so. I yeah. Don't know. Uh, I, the one I like, you made the note of this, but I like the idea of using really vague
1: abstractions such as doing it. Uh-huh. <laughs> doing <laughs> it. Or... Um, the source I was looking at mentioned, uh, like situation. Like just referring to this, the such and such situation. One that always uh, has annoyed me is the situ- the situation room. <laughs> like what what situation is the room for is it a war room right because if it's a war room let's call it a war room right is it an emergency room is it, let's let's call it what it is the situation room could be about anything
0: okay uh there would also be the concept of just saying that you don't want to say a thing essentially like unmentionables
1: yes he who, who should not be named right for right. Uh, lord voldemort uh and then there are, of course, mispronunciations like freaking or uh God, I guess, is gosh darn it one is replacing God with gosh. Does that work? Uh, I guess it could be yeah. like uh, gold, gold, darn it, gold, darn it. Gall yeah, that's darn the, it. that would yeah. be one. Yeah. And then there are plays on abbreviation, which I really hadn't thought much of. But um, bull roar is one that we actually used recently in talking okay. about BS. Uh Right. Or uh, just to go ahead and bleep me, um, bull, right? But I don't think I've ever used barbecue sauce. I saw that one listed as well. (laughs) Where'd you see that? It was in uh, one of the papers that we were looking at. They mentioned barbecue. So I would like to hear from anyone who who says, oh, that's just a load of barbecue sauce. Barbecue sauce. I've never heard that. It must be a regional, regional thing. What kind of barbecue sauce? Especially if it's regional. North Carolina? South Carolina? I don't know. Or bee sting. Bee sting would be a good one. Oh, is that actually used? No, I just made yeah.
0: that up. No, I was trying to think what, what what could you. That's even that even has some of the same uh, consonants in it.
1: Yeah. Um, how about malarkey? Or maybe malarkey is malarkey actually more offensive in in its origin? And we're just it's one of these things where we don't know what it means anymore. I have no idea where it comes from. Huh. It'd be horrible to go look that up later and find out
0: it's a deeply offensive term.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like that happens a, a time or two as well. We, we have something we think is, uh, is a euphemism. But in reality, we're just using a, 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 a far more offensive term that, no, that fewer people are familiar with. Okay, but so when you use euphemisms, ho- however you form the the new
0: phrase or the new word, you're, you're essentially doing maybe three different kinds of things,
1: right? Yeah, when you bust out uh, a euphemism, you may be employing what is called uh, circumlocution, to, to speak around that which cannot be said.
0: Yeah, circumlocution. And that's something we often use. In a non-euphemistic way, too. Like, we use it when we're speaking a language we're not very familiar mm. with. If you've ever tried to speak another language, you often don't have the word for a thing. Yeah. So instead, you circumlocute. You say a bunch of things that are sort of explaining the concept of the word. Right. To try to get to it. Uh, but this would be a case where you do the same thing, not because you don't have the word, but because you don't want to use the word.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, another example would be uh, taboo deformation. So we're just we're altering the spelling or pronunciation of of that which cannot be said. So go fudge yourself, um, you mother effer. Right. That would be an example of of uh, the use of taboo deformation. Or darn it. Yeah, goldarn it. We're just take like thinking. Think of the obscenity as this clay object, and we're just wrenching it into a less profane shape. But we still know what its original shape was. It's still it's still Echoes that form enough for us to use it, albeit in a blunted form.
0: Yeah, and I guess the other main thing would be uh, sort of robbing the word of its power to conjure imagery.
1: Yeah, double speak, right? Uh, Making neutral the awful. Uh, I think one of the the best examples of this is to say uh, the enemy combatant was neutralized, which sounds far nicer than we we shot Rolf to death, right? And his his family will be without him now, you know. Rolf was hit with an explosive that resulted in complete body um, uh, defrag- defragmentation. Right. Which I guess is... That, I, I, that'd
0: be sort of... A, that's
1: kind of a euthanism as well, right? But, right, uh, yeah,
0: defragmentation. It, what would it be? Rolf was hit by an explosion that severed many arteries. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know... So it's not that funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. No, no, no,
1: but it's kind of getting... As we try to, to dance around Rolf's death and even discuss more accurately what happened to Rolf... Are some things in life almost like too dreadful like there's there's no way that language at, at least brief language can accurately describe something that that is that horrible i don't
0: know i mean it's interesting to look at the general categories of things that we have euphemisms for it, it, it's not just arbitrary it's like it's not like we just have euphemisms for anything uh-huh. we have euphemisms usually for terms having to do with The inevitable processes of the human body, like, uh, like, uh, elimination of waste, Mm -hmm. uh, sex and death. Those, those are the big things that you have euphemisms for, but also for culturally sensitive issues like, uh, you know, for names of marginalized groups that are discriminated against. Right. Or something like that.
1: Yeah. And, uh you know as well as uh, the the way these things are shadowed and yeah, certainly there's a whole, there's a whole area of business uh, euphemism to discuss as dis- discuss as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and of course we have a number of different uh, euphemisms to uh, to to refer to firing someone, which is kind of the the workplace version of death, right? Oh yeah. We have uh, for instance you may have heard uh, about layoffs. Right. Downsizing. Right sizing—that's like that's a euphemism on top of a euphemism. Uh Like downsizing—that's no, we're not downsizing. We're right sizing. We're just we're we're just making the organization the correct size for what we're doing here, headcount adjustment or headcount reduction. Uh, an RIF or reduction in force, a realignment. Oh. These man. are all so, so fabulous. Uh, wonderful terms that allow, uh, management to do horrible things to people's lives. The, the worst. Without feeling bad about it.
0: Uh, the worst is let go. It's like, you're free.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we had, we had to let, we had to let you go. You should be thanking us. Right. Yeah.
0: Uh, I, I think maybe more than anywhere else I go in in my life, the business world is absolutely built out of euphemisms. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a reason for this might be that the business relationship is essentially a cutthroat relationship. Most of the time, if employers can scam customers or employees out of another nickel and get away with it and keep making money, they will do it most of the time. And vice versa, you know, every, everybody in the business relationship is, is trying to get an extra nickel and and give as little as they can for it. But at the same time, customers and employers and employees interact with one another all the time. You have to see your employer on a regular basis. I mean, most people do. Uh, so they want to have pleasant relationships with the people they interact with. So you kind of live in this state of denial about the heartless cutthroat principle at the foundation of your work relationships. And it's weird trying to be friendly with your boss when you're thinking about the fact that your boss could fire you at any time and in some places for any reason. So we, we sort of pack our business lives with euphemisms to avoid thinking about this cutthroat reality. In addition to the euphemisms for firing, one thing I was thinking about was, Robert, have you ever noticed that, at least in my experience, maybe in yours too, businesses seem to never want to talk about, quote, money Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, so maybe I'm imagining this, but it seems like money – is always removed to one higher level of abstraction like revenue or yeah. returns or something like that. Uh, and it's as if talking about money directly would reveal that the whole enterprise is kind of tacky at its
1: core. Or, you know, not only revenue, but rev, yeah. rev share. Uh-huh. Uh, like that's a term that is thrown around a lot in, in our industry now. And yet you talk about rev share, then it's just an item on, on a sheet. But if you say I want you to give me more of some of the money that you are getting for the thing that I'm making for you so that you can make money. Uh-huh. Uh, then it gets a little less tidy, right?
0: It's like, why are you making it like that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you've said something really mean when you're just saying in direct terms what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I often think about... Uh, We've all read the studies uh, in in terms of businesses where corporations are essentially psychopaths. Mm -hmm. Uh, I often and I often think of it in terms of like uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, beings and various cyberpunk uh, stories. So a corporation is essentially this this demon and this demon is bound by whatever chains of law and, uh, and policy and regulations that we can muster to keep it in check and then we we sort of handle it with specialized gloves often you know composed of euphemisms that allow us to handle it right. and, and benefit from its presence uh but there's no denying that it's it's horrible demonic nature that is um, a nice analogy it's it comes from i guess i i read one too many uh warhammer 40,000 book in, in my time
0: oh they have demon gloves for the corporations
1: um well no they have actual demons sometimes oh, okay. and they're chained up and they serve the um Uh, Who is it? The, uh, The Witch Hunters. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think we should take a quick break. And when we
0: come back, we're going to talk about some of the cultural implications of euphemisms.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
4: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com.
1: Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, yeah, we're talking about language here we have multiple languages throughout of course. the world every culture is uh, is it kind of emerges from its own linguistic world and therefore we have we have different uses of euphemism in uh, in different languages we have different uh, uses of euphemism in just different versions of different languages different dialects
0: right british english versus american english and yeah. so a lot of our reference points are going to be english but uh it is worth looking into the use of euphemisms maybe in other languages too
1: yeah uh Two great examples, I think, come from British English and Mandarin Chinese. So The uh, the Economist ran a great and naturally unattributed article back in uh, 2011 um, titled Making Murder Respectable. And it uh, runs through a number of examples of euphemisms that are currently uh, or, or sort of previously in use. I think some of the British ones have fallen out of Favor.
0: Did you notice that nice uh, euphemism there, unattributed, where the real term would be the author's name is not listed?
1: Yeah, the, you can either you would either say the the author is anonymous or or not credited right. for their work. But uh, I mean, that's the economist's business. That's a whole separate separate uh, separate uh, discussion. Uh, so yeah, we have a, a number of course uh, American uh, euphemisms, which uh, the the author in this uh, this article points out that these of course just replace non offensive words terms with new non offensive words and terms. Uh, we'll get into the details on this in, in a bit, but it entails something that's uh, that's been referred to as the euphemism treadmill, right? By the linguist and general scholar Stephen Pinker. Yeah, yeah, uh, contemporary, very very much contemporary, still commenting on the the world we find ourselves in today. British euphemisms, on the other hand, uh, they create quote a pleasant sense of com- of complicity between <laughs> the uh, euphemist and the uh, individual that's uh, listening to the euphemist. Uh, the, the the first few examples uh, that the author rolls out come from B- British obits. So, a drunkard will be described as uh, as convivial or cheery. <laughs> that's great. Um, a nymphomaniac is. Uh, a, it has notable uh, vivacity, <laughs> and uh, in in prior times, you would of course encountered uh, a homosexual only as a quote confirmed bachelor.
0: With all of these, it's almost as if the person using the euphemism and the person hearing it are sort of in on a joke together.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a, and, and that's something that the the author gets into here too. Is you you have to be in on the joke. To really understand at least proper British, proper British uh, um, conversation. Yeah. You have to know the cues. Otherwise, you're going to you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, one more from the obit world, though, is that there's a, the mysterious burden by occasional irregularities in his private life. <laughs> it's <laughs> private life. Yeah, which is delightfully like what what I, I assume that means scandals, scandal-ridden life, but uh-huh. that that's that's a lot sharper. Uh so yeah, the the author points out that there are a number of passive cues in sort of traditional high British uh, conversation such as uh incidentally. Incidentally, Joe. Uh, this would mean I am now telling you the purpose of this discussion, right. even though I'm saying incidentally, as if this is just an incidental point I want to make, I'm actually saying, all right, cut all the, the crap. This is the real reason we're meeting here today. Uh-huh. Uh, another one that the, uh, the author mentions with the greatest respect. With the greatest respect, Joe, uh, that means you are mistaken and silly. Right. Uh, which which, which seems to be the complete opposite
0: of what you're literally saying. I can think of a Southern American equivalent. What's that? Bless his
1: heart. Bless his heart. Yeah. You're Bless
0: not- his heart. That means sort of the opposite of what it says.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great example. Now, the the author of this Economist piece also pointed out that there are a number of Chinese euphemisms, uh, and these, like American euphemisms, often stem from squeamishness. It's not proper to be too direct, especially if you might offend somebody. So it's this idea of, a, of a polite opacity. Hmm. So instead of turning down an invitation, uh, and this might be... Like a this can be a really formal invitation, like you know a, a political of a political nature mm-hmm. uh, one might be told that uh, that something is a fang bien, which means not convenient uh, when that of course really means. We're not doing that. That's not happening.
0: So it's not like this is a bad time for me. Can we reschedule?
1: Right. It's it, it's very reminiscent of I'm, I imagine everyone out there has some friend or acquaintance that's very flaky, very wishy-washy about their appointments. You say, hey, do you want to hang out this week? Uh, let me check my calendar. Uh let me see. I'll get back to you. You know, instead of oh, but Senate,
0: sometimes that means that they'll get back to you. Sometimes. Yeah,
1: that's that's the thing. And if you didn't if you didn't know better, you might you, and you know, you might have a police an official inquiry with uh, with a Chinese government official and you and you might say, oh, well, it's not convenient. I'll try again tomorrow. But right. no, you're not getting the message. It's not convenient. It's not going to happen. Perhaps ever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another example is uh, you is one might ask for an explanation of something and you might get uh which means uh I am not clear, which just means you're not going to be told. Like it basically means I can't tell you that or I won't tell you that. But uh it's 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 casting that in the guise of, well, I'm not really clear on the information. Right. But it also kind of sounds like I am not clear and that I am not. uh I am opaque. I am opaque. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I find it interesting. There are examples like this in every language. And perhaps uh, our listeners out there, if you have particular examples you're aware of in a tongue that you speak or have some history with, uh, we'd love to hear those examples.
0: Oh, yeah. I always love hearing the uh, different idioms from around the world that we get from listeners. One of my favorites was we heard from a listener and, oh, now I apologize. I can't remember which language it was. I think it was uh, uh, Swedish or Norwegian or mm-hmm. maybe... uh uh, Scandinavian language okay. and the expression was uh it was an expression that means something is amiss mm-hmm. and the term is there are owls in the moss <laughs> I love it that's great there are owls in the moss that's, that's pretty good if you're the one who sent that to us we, I still think about that a lot uh, thank you so much Okay, well, for one other arena of uh, of the interaction between culture and euphemism, I was thinking about, what about religious euphemisms? So I Hmm. sometimes see – here's just one example. I want to talk about a few different examples. One of them is the way some Christians – use euphemism to talk about certain doctrines that they haven't explicitly rejected, but obviously aren't comfortable talking about directly. And one example that I have encountered before is the Christian doctrine of hell. Uh, Ah, yes. Now, there are many doctrines of hell, and I don't want to paint all believers with the same view, But one common interpretation throughout the history of the church is the sort of Dante's Inferno interpretation, saying that Dante is more or less correct. After death, people who are non-Christians or people who are unrepentant sinners go to a place of eternal torture and agony in fire. And some modern Christians explicitly deny that premise. They just don't believe in that or they don't interpret the uh, references to hell that way,
1: right? Yeah, we actually have an older "Stuff to Blow Your Mind" episode on this that that goes through some of the theologies, and mm-hmm. I think we have a we have a a list or a gallery that I can link to on the landing page for this episode at mind dot com. But yeah, you have everything from this literal interpretation to annihilation theology, which right. says when you die, going to hell is simply essentially, mm-hmm. essentially you are consumed; your soul is just completely obliterated. Yeah. You just cease to be. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then, of course, as you alluded to, some some do accept and embrace it and say explicitly what they mean. You know, hell is a place of torment. Uh, depart from me and everlasting fire. But there are some people who at least rhetorically seem stuck in the middle. I, I hear this fairly often. They don't reject the doctrine, but they don't want to talk about it bluntly. Mm-hmm. So you get phrases uh, that are things like, the, the unrighteous or the unbeliever will suffer divine judgment or something like that. It's, it's <laughs> euphemistic in nature. You know, you haven't
1: rejected the belief, but you just don't want to talk about the particulars of it. That's interesting. So they're basically they might, for, for instance, they might believe in this uh, this sort of torture, uh, revenge fantasy of hell. But they're using the language of annihilation theology instead uh, as a euphemism for what they actually believe.
0: Or just not being specific about what the judgment entails. Yeah. I mean, it, I think there, there are other terms, too. That was the first one that came to my mind. But. Huh. Yeah,
1: it's such a weird area to consider, right? Because so many of these, when you're using a euphemism for, you know, your your butt, you're talking about a thing that has a definite reality. Yeah. There's, there's nothing subjective. It's not a doctrine or belief. Right. There is an objective... <laughs> But there's an objective. there are objective buttocks. There is an anus. There's no deny. There are no. There's no no denying these things. But when you get into hell, there are all these discussions. There's 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 a there's a there's a broad spectrum of theologies regarding its existence or non-existence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm personally of the mind that whatever your belief about hell is, you should you should you should speak clearly about it.
0: Another type of religious euphemism, uh, I, I would say, is motivated by a very different type of thing. Instead uh-huh. of being uncomfortable with certain concepts or uh, not wanting to talk about certain things, it extends from a, a perception of holiness or reverence. And this is the evolution of the name of God in Judaism throughout history. So... It's not that the name of God has changed so much, or at least not much in in recent history in in Judaism, but that at certain points throughout history, usage of the name has become taboo because of beliefs about not taking the name of the Lord in vain. Mm -hmm. And thus, it is required to have a new word if you want to talk about religious ideas such as your belief in God without referencing this word that you might be using the wrong way. And so some of my info here is coming from a book on Hebrew and Western, uh, the Hebrew and Western Christian name of God by Robert J. Wilkinson but uh in, in the hebrew bible the jewish god has several names you've got names like el and elion uh elohim uh but the most common is yahweh the four letter word that's often called the tetragrammaton meaning four letters um and at a certain point in the history of judaism and generally in the the hellenistic period you know the greek conquest a taboo on pronouncing the name emerged. And so to quote one story about uh, this origin uh, from the Babylonian Talmud, quote, the Greeks, and that's referring to the Seleucid rulers of the region at that time, decreed that the name of God may not be spoken aloud. But when the Hasmoneans and that was a group of Jewish rebels, grew in strength and defeated them, they decreed that the name of God be used even in contracts. And an example of this might be something like, by the name of Yahweh, I will paint your chicken coop if you give me a tray of corn. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, but then uh, continuing from the Talmud, when the rabbis heard about this, they said, tomorrow this person will pay his debt and the contract will be thrown on a garbage heap. So they forbade its use in contracts. Uh, so it wasn't the use of the name that was necessarily inherently wrong. It was just that using it in this way for sort of everyday purposes made it vulnerable to accidental defilement.
1: Oh, okay. So you have in, – in a sense, you have a, a very secular use of divine terminology. Right. And uh, and it's not proper to throw that around.
0: Right, to just make up a contract with the name of God in it that you'd end up throwing in the trash.
1: It's like if you were uh, – what's the, the – um... The Clive Barker film, where you say the, the name three times and he shows up. Um, Candyman? Candyman, yeah. Oh, okay. So it's like Candyman. Can't, you don't want to say Candyman all the time because he, he'll show up and start killing people, right. right? you've
0: got a limited number of times you can invoke that.
1: Yeah, so we need to have another name for Candyman. You call him... Um, <laughs> Like, uh you know, sweet guy, dude, sweet, sweet guy. guy. <laughs> yeah. But then after a while, like there's still Candyman is just so magical and so potent mm-hmm. that uh, he's going to creep into that term as well and start popping up when you say that word. So you got to come up with another one.
0: Yeah. Uh But so anyway, going on in, in the same spirit of avoiding accidental defilement, some Jews throughout history have avoided saying the Tetragrammaton name out loud even in contexts where I would think one would assume it was probably not being defiled, such as in reading of the Torah. yeah. So you might have readings allowed from the Torah, where the reader would come to the four-letter name of God, and then instead of saying it, the reader would substitute something like the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. But then in time, the originally euphemistic Adonai, which was just substituted to avoid saying the original name, also came to be charged with the original holiness of the name of God. And so then later you'd have some Jews referring to God as Hashem, meaning the name. So you you have this evolutionary process by which um, a word is used to avoid disrespect, but then that word sort of becomes worthy of respect in in its own right. Uh But then anyway, so uh, according to the Talmud, sometime shortly after the conquest of Alexander the Great, the high priest uh, stopped saying the name of God when uh, when giving blessings. And in the Mishnah, which is a work of Jewish rabbinic literature, uh putting down lots of Jewish oral traditions into writing, the name of God is often avoided and substituted with other words associated with God, like heaven or the place or the holy one. Blessed be he. Uh, and so, again, I, I think these in, euphemisms are interesting because they're not used to avoid mentioning something unpleasant or offensive, but to avoid accidental defilement of a word that in this religious concept, context is believed to be holy, believed to be treated with reverence and respect.
1: Huh. That's interesting because I, I think it's easy to to believe that you just have all these different names for, for God solely because... Hey, God's really cool, really important, and has uh, all of these uh, uh, th- these these different points in time where people are considering it, and therefore they need a different name for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then we see that that sort of loose interpretation reflected in our discussion of unreal deities, where so like Go- Gozer the Gozerian has several different names in Ghostbusters, right? Uh, probably just because Gozer's cool and needs a number of names, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's true. Like you've lost the original uh, the original rationale. Yeah. For all this diversification. Yeah. yeah. But you've still got the process. It's a cargo cult of naming deities. (laughs) But I I was just wondering, are there similar euphemisms in other religions, too, for for either one for talking about concepts that might be uncomfortable to some believers, yet they haven't been fully rejected uh, or talking about things that cannot be named out of respect?
1: Yeah, uh, we we briefly talked about this before we came in here, we had a hard time nailing down another example. We we talked about the devil a little bit, yeah, but I think that's not exactly the same. It's not because it, there's this there's this timeline in our development of 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 the devil as a concept that's really kind of similar to our concept of hell, mm-hmm. where the devil as the, the sort of popular conception of the, the the Western devil, or even like the classical devil, or the or the, the Miltonian devil, or Dante's devil, like these are all Vastly different things, and they occur at different points in our evolving conception of the devil. And even just on a, on a, in a biblical basis, uh, you go back to, say, the book of Job. Like, that's not the devil. That's <laughs> right. That's some guy who works for God that's called Satan. Uh-huh. That I believe stems from the Hebraic, uh, hasatan, yeah. uh which was a, just a, a court role.
0: Yeah, exactly. But then I think we've also not, um, we've not had the same kind of evolution because the devil is not really considered holy. So, right. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: So In fact, there's often the, the, uh, the opposite effort to, to really cast the devil down instead and refer to, refer to it as a worm or a, yeah. or what have you.
0: Sometime we should do a History of the Devil show.
1: Oh, yeah, we should. Uh, but anyway, so I, I
0: want to move on yet again from one totally un- uncontroversial subject, religion, to another <laughs> one, <laughs> politics. Uh. Um, so there is definitely a strong cultural import of euphemism in politics. And this is, this probably won't come as a surprise to you, but exactly how it works out, you might be a little fuzzy on. And this is something that is, uh, you, you can definitely find explored in a really lucid and fascinating way in the 1946 essay by George Orwell, the English journalist and critic called Politics and the English Language and in this essay which by the way is a lot of people might have read it in college as sort of just like a writing style essay but i think it's a great read it's just fun to read he he's got a great writing style uh, and anyway, in this essay, Orwell lays out a series of criticisms as what he saw as the deterioration of the quality of published writing in English in his time. So he's coming right out of World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've got a, you've got a, a, a victorious Soviet Union to deal with. You've just, you've just had the fall of the Nazi regime. The, the world has been in chaos for a while. Uh, but anyway, he, he so he's talking about in this, in this climate, the English language has really been put through the ringer. Oh, and I just used a cliché that he would abhor because he <laughs> attacks the use of clichés like that in his essay. Uh, but in one famous passage, Orwell translates a well-written verse from the King James Bible translation of the book of Ecclesiastes into the style he's referring to in modern English. And uh, so I'm, I just got to read this because it's too good. The King James Bible says... I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Okay. Orwell's rewriting of that in modern English is, Objective considerations of contemporary phenomena compel the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity, but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account. (laughs) Now, it does communicate the same sense, basically, right?
1: Yeah, I almost feel like like his uh, translation of it. Uh, is better maybe it'd be, what i think maybe it just comes from reading too many you know god-awful peer reviewed papers for work but um uh, but i feel like that one kind of drove home a little 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 easier for me
0: oh man i can't agree with you here robert that is <laughs> awful come on yeah hey you know okay well, anyway, so, so Orwell goes on to say in, in his main characterization that, quote, "...modern writing at its worst does not consist in picking out words for the sake of their meaning and inventing images in order to make the meaning clearer. It consists in gumming together long strips of words which have already been set in order by someone else and making the results presentable by sheer humbug. <laughs> the attraction of this way of writing is that it is easy." And I think there's some truth to that, like uh, that when you use these sort of cliches and bloated phrases, it r- writing comes very naturally. You don't have to think as much about the images or the mm-hmm. words you're choosing as you do when you try to write things in a simpler, uh, more concrete way.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's uh, this second example. I was I instantly thought of peer reviewed papers because yeah. there is this this often very specific clinical technical discussion of what's going on mm-hmm. often you know not not all the time uh, but sometimes this can feel a bit soulless yeah but you can you can read it and you you basically you basically know what they're talking about in, yes. in 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 great detail and there's less interpretation involved and so yeah that's it's a less creative venture uh either to to write or to read but is it more exact
0: I don't know if it is. And I mm-hmm. think, well, Orwell might disagree with you, but I, I would like to hear what you think once he's so I, I want to get okay. to his main argument. and Then maybe you can come back and flog Orwell for me. So uh, for Orwell, the decline in the quality of writing was not just an aesthetic concern. It's not just bad writing that is less enjoyable to read. It is actually a threat against truth, freedom and social democracy. Uh, English, quote, becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the slovenly of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. And so if you've read uh, Orwell's novel, novel, 1984, Robert, I assume you've read 1984. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you'll recall that at the time of the story takes place, the totalitarian government in the novel, working under Big Brother, is engaged in the creation of a new form of English uh, known as Newspeak. And uh, in, in politics and language, Orwell says, quote, if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. And Newspeak in, in 1984 very much embodies this. It reflects, I think, what Orwell saw as the political power of language, essentially control the use of language and you control how people think, control how people think and you command them to your purpose. Uh, and so I want to read one uh, long ish quote from politics in the English language where he really gets to how euphemisms are used in political writing and political journalism. So here's the quote with a few abridgments for length. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question begging and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants are driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine-gunned, the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of the population, or rectification of frontiers." People are imprisoned for years without trial, shot in the back of the neck, or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Consider, for instance, some comfortable English professor defending Russian totalitarianism. And he's talking about Stalinism there. He cannot say outright, I believe in killing off your opponents when you can get good results by doing so. Probably, therefore, he will say something like this. While freely conceding that the Soviet regime exhibits certain features with uh, which the humanitarian may be inclined to deplore, we must, I think, agree that a certain curtailment of the right to political opposition is an unavoidable concomitant of transitional periods and that the rigors which the Russian people have been called upon to undergo have been amply justified in the sphere of concrete achievement. The inflated style itself is a kind of euphemism. A mass of Latin words falls upon the facts like soft snow, blurring the outline and covering up all the
1: details. So what do you think about that, Robert? No, I mean, I, I agree with that. It's I guess it comes down to like this kind of this kind of writing uh, that we're talking about is it's essentially writing like a machine. Yeah. And and inviting the reader to think about the the topic like a machine, with sort of this with, without any of these human touches that that uh, that add humanity to the subject matter. Which in a I think in a, in a scientific environment, like or certainly in say a study about um, uh, E. coli in a in a lab experiment, mm-hmm. that's perfectly that's perfectly fair like that's the way to do it oh sure but of course when you when you're getting into um, you know affairs of, of politics and war certainly um, even domestic politics you know the, people's lives hang in the balance right and if you distance yourself with language enough then you don't have to deal with the the, the actual flesh and blood ramifications of what you're talking about But then the other side of that is it's somebody's job. Right. Yeah. To make a better killing machine. It's somebody's job to uh, to to cut how the the funding of public housing. Right. You know, so it of course, they're going to try and do it in a way that makes them feel less icky. Right. I mean, so
0: Orwell says political language uh and he, he says that this comes from both sides, from conservatives to anarchists, is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable mm. and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. And I, I think there is a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, you, I mean, I understand the need for it. I'm not saying that it is done, uh, purely out of calculating malice. There, there are people who work in, in government. Who do things that you would probably think of as bad, but who don't think of themselves as bad people, and so they, they they've got to come up with some way of getting around this, and it's this circumlocution or it's this neutralizing language, like we talked about earlier, uh, coming up with these abstract terminologies, naming things in terms of processes rather than of consequences. You know, uh, it's not that we killed a guy, but the enemy was neutralized. And for Orwell, you know, I think these types of phrases and euphemisms are they're not limited to the rulers themselves, right? They're not limited just to people who want to justify themselves in tyranny and stupefy the masses with this lullaby of empty, denatured language. They're also used by people who should know better. People yeah. who who might even be critical of those in power. Euphemisms and mushy phrases are used, he emphasizes, because they're easy. They make writing easier and they make thinking about concepts easier. Euphemisms are like a lubricant that just allows you to easily insert your mind into a conversation without struggling with the most difficult implications of it. And for Orwell, this is not just, uh, a- applicable to these political euphemisms, you know, for killing and, and, and these horrible acts, but it goes into everyday conversation. So he writes, quote, phrases like a not unjustifiable assumption I that, <laughs> leaves much to be desired, would serve no good purpose, a consideration which we should do well to bear in mind. Are a continuous, uh, and he says those are a continuous temptation. A packet of aspirins, always at one's elbow, and I really do like that idea of the euphemism as a painkiller.
1: Yeah, it, it it makes me think. I'm instantly thinking of uh, of various uh, recent examples of uh, of strong statements about about war and the use of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a political climate and here i'm using euphemisms already to 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 talk about it but um it's like it's like if you have this sentence where you're going to say we are going to eliminate enemy combatants Mm all right and if you if you start removing some of the euphemisms there you still have to try and make that an acceptable sentence to whoever whoever is saying or um or listening to it yeah so if, if you replace eliminate with kill, if you replace eliminate with... Uh with, you know, uh, a carpet bomb or something like that. And if you were, then you're still going to have to try and make it a sentence that you can live with. And sometimes that comes. So what else can you change in that sentence? You can change enemy combatants to barbarians. Mm-hmm. You can or, or any other various uh, form that also dehumanizes what's going on. Yeah. But by point, so by changing the direction of the dehumanization. Right. Well, that would be what was uh,
0: what is known as a dysphemism.
1: Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is
0: that how you pronounce it? A euphemism would be you know it's euphemism comes from you meaning good and female female meaning speech. Mm-hmm. so a dysphemism is the opposite essentially you're you're taking a concept that's inherently neutral and applying a term to it that is a bad filtering term. yeah it it's it, it essentially filters out the good imagery or things you might associate with a thing and and uh, gives it bad connotations.
1: Well, what's a good example here of a a dysphemism for our uh, listeners? Oh, how about how about uh, somebody is
0: not happy with a deal that Mm -hmm. they made? You know, they bought a car or something and they say, I got ripped
1: off. Oh, and to take it a step further, they would say, oh, I got screwed. Yeah, I really got screwed in that deal. Did you really get, quote unquote, screwed in any of the various interpretations there
0: no you just bought something and you you later regretted how much you spent on it or something but
1: nay they have used the screws on my hands and my fingers <laughs> and now i have lost the ability to write
0: oh is that for thumb screws yeah I'm, think, I'm thinking mean?
1: of a very medieval interpretation Yeah.
0: okay but either way ripped off oh well, you didn't uh, ripped off means you got robbed
1: yeah you didn't get
0: robbed You, you made a deal that you're, that you later regretted. Uh, but that's a dysphemism. It's, it's substituting a more negative connotation word, uh, for this originally you know, more direct term.
1: And I guess that would be kind of on the outskirts of hyperbole. Like you're not going as far to say this was highway robbery. Yeah. Uh, but you're getting close. Yeah.
0: But so the, there are just like, there are lots of euphemisms in political language. There are some dysphemisms in it too. Like you might find uh, in establishment language, the government itself and and the bureaucracies that exist tend to speak in euphemisms to kind of make everything a little, a little uh, smoothed over and a little soothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but meanwhile, you might have sort of agitators and radical factions tending to speak in dysphemisms talking about fairly normal things that you could express in a fairly straightforward way in these uh, just grandly negative
1: terms. Yeah, I think especially in this Facebook age. Uh, everybody can think of, of strong examples of this. Yeah. You know, what, how is, uh, say, the New York Times uh, explaining the situation, and how is your, uh, your, your Uncle Jim explaining the situation? Or how is the article that he's linking That's explaining
0: it? Very likely. I'd say the New York Times is probably being a little euphemistic. I mean, mm-hmm. even even their good writers, they tend to be a little euphemistic, uh, just not putting things in very blunt, harsh terms. Right. They might say go to the restroom. It's the going to the restroom of politics. Yes. <laughs> But there's plenty of dysphemism out there on the web. But anyway, I want to come back to Orwell. So the question is sort of uh, – so Orwell had these concerns about euphemisms, about their potential for enabling totalitarianism and their, their the threat that they represented to a free social democracy. So my question is, was Orwell's belief in the totalitarian potential of vocabulary correct? In some ways I'm sort of inclined to agree with him because the examples he gives very much make sense to me by, by using this sort of denatured, sanitized language to talk about killing people and, you know, d- doing things that are very harsh and cruel and have real bloody realities and, you know, down in the dirt of reality. I'm sure it makes it easier for people to assent to these things, to, to sort of just go along with it. We, we've found some nice words for it. But then again, um, there are other strong arguments that sort of go against the idea that vocabulary has this much power over our thinking. And uh, I guess we can maybe address these after a break. Do you want to take a break? Yeah, let's take a back.
1: quick break and we come back. We'll talk about the euphemism treadmill uh, as well as the the Worfian view. Uh, and uh, the work of Steven Pinker.
4: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. So uh, we were talking about whether this totalitarian potential of vocabulary control is correct. Do, do words really have this much power to control the way we think? Does language determine thought? So
1: as uh, linguist Steven Pinker uh, has, has pointed out, the, the Orwellian view is really kind of based in what's referred to as the Worfian view. Right. This is the work of American linguist Benjamin Lee Worf, no relation to the Klingon, the <laughs> different spelling i believe right. also often known as the sapir-whorf hypothesis yes and uh he to give you a timeline for him he was uh 1897 through 1941 that's when he was alive and uh yeah so his his argument and then uh, therefore orwell's argument is yes language uh we we language is how we think we think in language this is the like the bare bones language is the operating for the operating system for the human brain right view.
0: But a lot of cognitive neuroscience now says, eh, I don't know if that view is correct. In fact, it's probably not. Right.
1: Now, I will say this. Uh, this is an important fact to, to keep in mind about language, is that uh, while spoken language comes to us naturally, we're exposed to it growing up. We simply absorb the words that uh, fill our world, multiple languages even. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the same with written language. Written language takes work. We have to trick our brains early on in order to avoid uh, backwards letters, the DB confusion, because our brains inherently try to decipher symbols and letters as three-dimensional objects. Huh. Uh, I never thought about that. Yeah, it's uh, uh, uh I was uh, uh reading or listening to something about that recently. Uh, the point however here is that that written language is kind of a lie. So grammar <laughs> rules, dictionaries, all of these attempt to to chain uh, that which is free, to solidify the inherently fluid nature of language uh certainly humans have been saying the same things for a very long time and will continue to say say the same horrible things but uh, how we say them changes the individual words the cultural weight of those words um and i often think of think of this in terms of um weighted stones placed upon a, a sheet, okay? Like a hmm. sheet that's held so taut by individual. Pull a sheet tight. Yeah. Um, this is an exercise that's frequently used to demonstrate how massive planetary objects bend uh, and, and exert gravitational forces. Right. Okay? So like the sheet is space-time
0: and a, and a rock is an object with mass on Right. Yeah.
1: But instead of uh, it, each stone being, um, you know, a planet, each stone is a word. And unlike actual stones... Uh, and unlike, unlike words, as we might experience them in a dictionary, uh, the weights change. Hmm. So this is where we get into this idea that uh, Stephen Pinker gives us, the idea of the euphemism treadmill, hmm. the linguistic process by which euphemisms often become taboo or offensive. So a euphemism is originally created in order to
0: avoid having to say the taboo or offensive or uncomfortable thing. Mm-hmm. But then in time... The euphemism itself takes on the properties of that original word you were trying to avoid.
1: Yeah, have you ever played a platform video game where your character has to jump onto uh, a pillar? And once you stand on the pillar, it begins to sink down, oh, perhaps yeah. into the muck. Yeah. And you have oh, to jump yeah. to the next pillar, and that starts doing the same thing. Right. And this is how you have to cross this entire expanse of muck. You've got to keep moving. Yeah. That's basically what's going on here with the euphemism treadmill. Polite Pink- language. Yeah. has got to keep moving. Uh, Pinker says, quote, the euphemism treadmill shows that concepts, not words, are in charge. Give a concept a new name, and the name becomes colored by the concept. The concept does not become freshened by the name. So he gives examples of like the
0: progression of terminology for people with disabilities. Uh, so mm-hmm. he, he starts with the idea that crippled originally, that was not an offensive term. That was a polite term right, to describe somebody who had a disability, but it took on negative connotations. People began to use it as a mean word to say about people. So then that was moved on. And so so we no longer say that. And now we have handicapped. Uh but then that also eventually became uh perceived as sort of like stale as a euphemism, I guess. Right. And this I guess it started to take on some of the negative connotations that that crippled had acquired and then moved on to
1: disabled. And so you've got this. And I think constant, like differently abled is, yeah. is is more of the current version. Like we've moved on again to another pillar in the muck.
0: Right. So you can so on one hand, just if you're looking from the outside, you'd be like constantly moving words around. That seems kind of ridiculous. But it it's not when you consider how usage of words happens and how
1: language works. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, people if people are using a word with negative connotations, eventually people who want to use that word with positive connotations will want a different word.
1: Yeah. A- another great example of this uh, that's uh, cited is the use of idiot or moron. Mm-hmm. These used to be neutral terms. Right. They weren't insults. Right. But over time they became they became insults. And now they are very much an insult. If you right. call someone an idiot or a moron, you are using an insult. You are not using a neutral term. So we went from that to retarded, which at, at for like it feels weird to say it because yeah. it now it is the R word right. unless you're you know using it in very particular circumstances. Right. Um but, uh, but this was, this was neutral and then it became an obscene term. Uh, and then from here we went to mentally, mentally challenged and special, but even these I feel have, are, are degraded, uh, to a large degree, especially special. Like to say someone's special, yeah. I, I can, I can't think of any specific examples, but I believe I've heard that used at least flippantly, if not uh, as an outright offense. Oh, yeah. It is a thing mean kids
0: say now. Mm-hmm. Like a mean kid wants to – they'll they'll call another kid special. Children, if you're out there listening – I don't know why children are listening to us, but you should not <laughs> do that.
1: children probably listen.
0: That's not very nice. But, yeah, again, it shows that as soon – so you come up with – and I'd be interested to see if somebody could create a uh, – a like time lag model of this, like how long after a new non-offensive term is introduced, mm-hmm. does it take before that term takes on some unpleasant connotations? People start using it as a term of insult or abuse and people who want to speak politely feel like they need a new term.
1: Yeah. like How long does it generally take? Yeah. Another example of this I think would be in business. So we already talked about the, the the robust use of euphemisms in in the business environment. Uh-huh. But also think about the buzzwords, right? Oh man. Those buzzwords, they got to have buzz or they're not buzzwords and buzzwords inherently lose their buzz. So, you know, everybody might be talking about the uh, I, I can't I can't even think of what the most recent one has been in our circles. But to take an older one, like there was a time when when innovation, innovation oh. or storytelling, we are all storytelling.
0: Storytelling is the one I hate that these words have been completely destroyed, but I believe they have. Yeah, we need we <laughs> I we need new words and storytelling. Come on. I love stories. Yeah, stories are like my favorite thing on Earth. But when I hear when I hear business leaders talking about storytelling, I'm like, well, OK, we can't use can't, we can't, use can't describe it anymore. like that anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it ends up losing that it, it loses its its punch. It loses its value in a sense. It loses its holiness. Right.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It does lose its holiness. And it also comes to stop referring to the thing it originally referred to. Yeah. When it basically just means like any talking In any talking or writing or or any kind of communication can be storytelling. Mm -hmm. That's not storytelling. Right. What is storytelling?
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, to come back to the euphemism treadmill real quick, I, I also want to point out that I have seen it argued that this is essentially uh, uh, this essentially lines up with Gresham's law, Gresham's law in economics, which states that bad money drives out the good. Huh. Uh, this is named for uh, Sir Thomas Gresham, the financial agent of Queen uh, Elizabeth the mm-hmm. first. Uh, and the idea here was that if some coins in circulation are pure, pure silver and others are less pure, people are going to spend the bad coins if they're going to keep the good ones for themselves. Oh, what do you know? Yeah.
0: So that that makes sense to me. I, yeah, the, that correlation uh, with the euphemism treadmill. But also you have a note here, Robert, about a different kind of treadmill that I found interesting.
1: Yeah, we've already uh, mentioned dysphemisms. There is a dysphemism treadmill as well. Okay. And uh, the example that uh, th- that comes up uh, is that sucks. Okay. That sucks uh stems from a a more specific uh, statement that is also still in use but a more offensive one. Right. You can say something sucks and it's you know it's in kids TV shows. But yeah. you know it's it's on you know whatever's on Nickelodeon or Cartoon uh, Network uh, during the day when children are watching. But they're they're not going to say what something is sucking.
0: Yeah. When I was a kid, I remember saying that sucks, thinking it was a totally non-offensive phrase. And having a teacher uh, tell me, you know, if I'd said that word, it would have been like I said a word that rhymes with it. Yeah. That was what, <laughs> uh, he he was saying that, that that is a really, really offensive term. But it wasn't like that to me. And it was that
1: it had lost its dysphemistic qualities. Yeah. And it's one of those, two when you start peeling it apart, it's like, why is that a state? Why is that bad? I don't know. It's, 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 we get we get all our sexual politics wrapped yeah. up in in, uh, in in how you feel about uh, the latest X-Men movie.
0: Another one I can think of, though we can edit this out if it's way more offensive than I think. But, okay, But I think one is the British expre- uh, British English expression bloody, which I think used to be considered incredibly offensive, oh, like, a, yeah. like a highly offensive expletive and now is an incredibly mild expletive Hmm. that so much so that it can appear in Harry Potter books and stuff.
1: Yeah, I wonder, I've I've never looked into it, but I've often wondered, like, to what extent is it still a little more offensive in British uh, circles than it is in American? Because so much American usage of it, we're just aping. British usage of it, without really having a strong cultural understanding, maybe of, of what is being said.
0: That's a good question. Again, maybe we're we're yet again doing the cargo cult of euphemisms.
1: Yeah, and you kind of get I guess into the like the the, the currency uh, equivalencies of uh, of different insults. Right. Or th-
0: sorry, this wouldn't be of euphemisms. The cargo cult of expletives. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, but l- let's come back to what we started talking about with the idea of the the Warfian view in Orwell. So we've got this this other argument from Pinker and from, you know, cognitive neuroscience and all this, who says, they say, you know, the words don't really matter, actually, all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, words don't have this power. But I I don't feel that. I, right. I feel very strongly that Orwell was on to something.
1: Yeah. yeah, And uh, and I actually found a paper that gets into this a bit. It's very good. It's available. It's readily available online. 2008 paper by... Um, by Stanford's Daniel uh, Casasanto. It was published in the journal Language Learning. Uh, and uh, the title is, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wharf? <laughs> Cross-Linguistic Differences in Temporal Language and Thought. So this is addressing the Wharfian view,
0: that language in some way determines or influences thought.
1: Yeah, and, and it's interesting because he... I'm not going to say he takes a middle of the road approach. Mm-hmm. It's definitely more in Pinker's direction. He's not saying that the Worfian view is valid completely, yeah. but that there that we can't. But but what he is saying is that we can't completely dismiss the power uh, of this this Worfian uh, uh, relationship between thoughts and words.
0: OK, so maybe that words don't don't totally determine thoughts, but they have some kind of influencing relationship.
1: Yes, exactly. In fact, I'll read just a quick quote from this article to to really drive this home. Why should we continue to do Warfian research? One possible reason is that cataloging cross-linguistic cognitive differences could be a step toward charting the boundaries of human biological and cultural diversity. If this is the goal, then the Worfian effects most worth finding should be extreme instances in which differences between languages produce radically different experiences of reality in their speakers. Alternatively, cross-linguistic cognitive differences could be tools for investigating how thinking works and in particular for investigating the role of experience in the acquisition and representation of knowledge. If people who talk differently from correspondingly different mental representations as a consequence, then mental representations must depend in part on these aspects of linguistic experience. If discovering the origin and structure of our mental representations is the goal, then cross-linguistic cognitive differences can be informative even if they are subtle, and even if their effects are largely unconscious. Whether or not they correspond to radical differences in speakers, conscious experiences of the world... Warfian effects can have profound implications for the study of mental representation. Okay, so yeah, he is taking. Maybe I would call
0: that a middle view. He, you know, even if, even if he's saying like the the Warfian hypothesis that language determines thought is yeah. wrong, mm-hmm. uh, there are still influences that are worth investigating.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, that's the, the the point. Like the, essentially, that language is still too powerful. It's too ubiquitous. It's playing some sort of role. It's we just have to it's just to what extent and in which cases it's most uh, transformative. Interesting.
0: Well, so I wanted to end by thinking about a a little more about what is the effect of using euphemisms on our minds and on our culture, uh, because When you come up with terms like, you know, the euphemism treadmill, I'm not saying uh, Pinker necessarily meant it this way. I Mm -hmm. I detect a little bit of uh, amusement on his part. Yeah. Uh, But I'm not saying he definitely meant it to be a a term of derision. But you do get this idea of a treadmill being a thing, this sort of like useless cycle. Yeah. Uh, And it's not necessarily useless, according to some thinkers. And I, I wanted to talk about an essay uh, done for Aeon Magazine in 2016 by the Columbia University Linguistics Professor John McWhorter. And so he starts by recognizing Pinker's concept of the euphemism treadmill, and he gives a lot of really great examples of these types of treadmills throughout history. Like we talked about, he, he talks about the evolution of the concept of welfare um, welfare originally being like, uh, you know, home assistance mm-hmm. and then welfare and then cash assistance where each time there's a new term, it sort of starts to take on mean classist connotations. Right. And then you need a new term, uh, because it starts to be used as a term of abuse. But for McWhorter, this, he says this treadmill is not only inevitable, but pretty much good in, in his words a healthy process necessary in view of the eternal gulf between language and opinion uh, and he 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 says basically that thought changes more slowly than word usage but it eventually catches up and this requires that in a civilized society people are going to frequently want to change their euphemisms it's an inevitable thing and it reflects people's
1: desire to be polite and civilized toward one another Except, of course, on the Internet, where one does not have to be polite or civil. (laughs) But that's that's kind of that's a whole separate discussion right there.
0: Right. Of course, you're always going to have people who want to defy. But uh, near his conclusion, he says, quote, the euphemism treadmill, then, is neither just a form of bureaucratise nor of identity politics. It is a symptom of the fact that however much we would like it to be otherwise, it's easier to change language than to change thought.
1: In a sense, it's like you're you're simply asking someone. Look, I know you're not going to stop being awful anytime <laughs> soon. But if you could at least use language that doesn't, uh, you know, wear your awfulness uh, on your sleeve, that would be great. And maybe in time, that outward decency will will bleed through to some semblance of inner decency, right? Yeah, yeah, I
0: guess so. Like, again, earlier we talked about euphemisms being a painkiller or also being a lubricant. And mm-hmm. in this sense, it might be both of those things. Maybe euphemisms uh, or, or finding a nicer new word for a word that has taken on negative connotations, if that's what a euphemism is, I guess, right. <laughs> um, it, it might not solve the underlying problem. It might not fix people's attitudes, but it might just be exactly what it seems like. It's a lubricant. It's a painkiller. It makes interacting in society easier, makes people get
1: along a little bit better. I can't help but think of the term African American. The adoption of that term uh, to replace uh, various other uh, terms for, uh, you know, black American citizens mm-hmm. uh, has a, you know, it, it drives home the fact that this is your fellow American, this is a this is an American and they have a particular origin just as you and your, uh, uh, you know, uh, Caucasian uh, or, or Asian or what have you, just as, as your uh, your family has an origin somewhere else as well. Like they are th- these individuals are are not that different from you.
0: So do you think that that term actually helps people change their way of thinking? Or is it just this just this lubricant that makes it easier to live in a polite society and get along with each other?
1: I don't know. I guess I hope I I like to think I would prefer to live in a world where the the language changes the way you think Mm -hmm. that in, in 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 having to call an individual something more humanizing. Uh, that eventually you will see them in in more human terms but then again i don't think any of us believe that language alone is the sole operator here like right. there it has to it has to come as part of a a larger suite of uh, of of social change instruments
0: mhm so, yeah, I think I'd agree with that and with what McWhorter is saying. But I guess the flip side of it is that we're accepting some truth of what Orwell is saying. And mm-hmm. that in many cases, euphemisms are also going to corrupt clarity of thought, make us sort of dull and irresolute and and make it harder for us to resist evil. And so maybe maybe the case is not about whether euphemisms are good or bad, but just that some euphemisms are more worthy than others.
1: I think so. Yeah. I mean, Words are powerful and yeah. the right euphemisms are also powerful. So all you can do is hope that, uh, you know, whoever's in a position of power has the best words <laughs> at uh, their disposal. And on that cheerful note, uh, let's uh, let's end by just uh, discussing a few uh, favorite euphemisms. Uh, what what are some of yours, Joe? Uh, I
0: love how you'll see this a lot in Europe. The bathroom, which is itself a euphemism, mm-hmm. is the W.C. It has just been reduced to a couple
1: of letters. Like not even Water Closet, but just WC. WC. Okay, I like that. Like WC Fields. (laughs) Um, I don't know if it's quite a euphemism, but I have always been fond of the, uh, I believe... I don't know if he invented the phrase, but it certainly shows up in Shakespeare's Othello, uh, making the beast with two backs, as uh, a euphemism, or, or or perhaps the opposite for sexual intercourse. I don't know if that's a euphemism. That's fairly expressive. It's ex- it's expressive, but it all but it definitely changes the the meaning of the thing. Like uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess it comes down to would you? Are there cases where you would say making the beast with two backs? And it would be more polite than saying they were having sexual intercourse. They I, were having sex.
0: I don't think that's the case. It's w- There must be another word for whatever that type of thing is, where you have a a word or a phrase that means the same thing as something else. And it's not more polite, oh. but it's just like more, I don't know, funnier. Like making whoopee.
1: I think that would be an example. Because okay. whoopee is like whoopee. It's it's fun. It's fl- it, like if you were to. OK, here are the three choices. Uh, imagine you're in a roommate scenario and you have to say oh well i walked in on my roommate and uh um he and his uh partner were making the beast with two backs like that <laughs> or if you were to say well i walked in on my uh my roommate and he and his partner were making whoopee like which of the two this <laughs> is the two summoned vastly different images they're both highly polite yes they're both <laughs> incredibly generous huh. all right well uh I know everybody out there has their favorite euphemisms and, uh, and certainly some, uh, some cross-cultural examples we'd love to, to, to hear. So you should definitely reach out to us about them. You can find us in a number of places, but the best starting point is to just go head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com because that's where you'll find this podcast episode, all the other podcast episodes. You'll find blog posts, videos and links out to our various social media accounts such as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Tumblr, wherever you do your social social media media ing you will find us and if you want to get in touch with us directly you can always
0: email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com
2: for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com